0: The first thing is to recognize that there is a history before this situation got to you and to not assume that it's your job to just create a performance improvement plan or a corrective action plan because those are the rules.
1: This is the Rebel HR Podcast. If you're a professional looking for innovative, thought-provoking information in the world of human resources, this is the right podcast for you. All right, Rebel HR listeners, I am extremely excited to introduce you to our guest today, Liz Kizlick. Liz has an impressive uh, resume, and uh, she's someone that you should absolutely be pay- paying attention to. She is a management consultant, executive coach, and a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. She's got a great TEDx, which is why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it. That's been viewed more than 200,000 times. She specializes in developing high-performing leaders, workforces, and for 30 years has helped family-run businesses, national nonprofits, and Fortune 500s solve their thorniest problems. And we're going to be talking about some thorns today. Welcome to the show, Liz.
0: I'm really glad to be with you, Kyle.
1: Well, likewise, we are are happy to have you. Uh, An extremely... Uh, impressive list of accomplishments, and and I'm really excited to to pick your brain a little bit about something that's not politics.
0: That's okay because, you know, things that are not politics continue even when politics are very much front of mind.
1: Well said, well said. Um, So uh, for our our listeners, we are actually recording this uh, a few days after the presidential election, so we don't want to spoil the outcome for you because right now we're waiting on like five states to finish counting ballots. But obviously, one of the things that's top of mind is, is conflict. And whether that's the conflict that uh, we have seen in our country over the last, uh, you know, many number of years, or the potential future conflict of whoever ends up winning the presidency, conflict is, is something that we all have to face. And in the context of human resources, it's something that that a lot of times we have to face uh, and we don't necessarily get to prepare for it. We have to figure it out as we go along. So uh, Liz, I appreciate your your experience with conflict and I'd really like to dive into um, conflict in general with you today. So maybe if we can start broadly um, and talk uh, about your approach to conflict in general.
0: I guess there are a couple of themes, Kyle, in the way that I look at conflict um, people have a hard time with each other and assume that that is because of who the people are and what the people are like and through my career what I've seen is that there are underlying reasons for many, many conflicts, almost what you could think of as a kind of phase zero. There are things that happened sometime before the time at which you think, oh, this is a conflict that helped to set that conflict in motion. It is not just about the conversation you didn't like or the meeting that didn't go well or the specific difference of opinion two people have had. There are usually underlying constructs, um, history, a bunch of stuff that comes before the conflict you see.
1: Hmm. So um, I, I hear that, and I I think that a lot of times we think about conflict in a, a little bit of a vacuum, so it's like an event. Um, are you saying that it's it's much deeper than that, that it starts before an event actually happens?
0: Yes, exactly. It's deeper, and there is a an historical trail that got us to this place. So the conflict is sort of like – what we think of as the conflict is sort of like the flare, you know um, –
1: <laughs> you yeah.
0: see that on the little chart of things running along and the line is sort of bobbling and bobbling and then there's a spike. And that's what we call the conflict usually. It's, it's some uncomfortable conversation or it's kind of that thing where somebody is sitting in a meeting and suddenly starts to feel uncomfortable. It's not going well. And part of the way they categorize that feeling is as coming from some negative set of interactions with somebody else in the room instead of thinking, oh, you know, there's there's a structure here. Uh, let me make up an example. For example, in many, many companies, there is a longstanding set of disagreements that have become part of the normal workday that happen between say uh, people in sales and people in operations because the people in sales are doing anything they can to bring in more customers and to say yes to customers even though whatever they're bringing back to the shop may not be so great for the people in operations who have to learn and figure out how to deal with you know, special orders and custom problems and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And um, the people in operations, on the other hand, want efficiency, want throughput, want reduced cost, and so they want all of the sales to be as similar as possible so that it's you know, easier to get through the processing and the accountability of delivery. So those are natural reasons to have differences of opinion, but they don't have to be fights. We think of conflict as fighting, as being against each other, as opposed to just having to work something out.
1: I don't know how many people actually think about conflict as a positive thing. I mean, I think we all know that it can be good at times. It can foster some some good outcomes. But uh, I, I think, our at least myself, I'm predisposed to tense up and get ready for a for a fight when a conflict happens.
0: Yeah, um, they're really valuable in bringing to the surface things that need to be addressed. They are really valuable in bringing new ideas to the table. Sometimes, uh, in looking at how could we do things better. They can in fact be very oriented toward a more positive shared future. But we think of them as discomfort and most people not all, most people fear them, assume things may go badly or they might lose. And this idea of winning and losing as if it's zero-sum That's not good. Hmm. Um, The idea that it's winner take all, well, of course, in that circumstance, we would want to avoid it unless we already knew we had the total authority and power to resolve it in our favor, but the deck is rarely stacked in that way, certainly in workplaces, so it takes courage to go into it not knowing What's going to happen afterward? Or you have people who actually enjoy stirring things up. Some people, <laughs> right? Don't you know people like that? Some people, it's it's like um, the the excitement of the chase almost. It's sparring. It's fun. And some people like it. Because if they do have a little extra power or authority, it is a way to assert themselves and feel better about being one up, about winning. Um, And that can create quite a negative spiral. So we, we attach a whole range of meaning just to the idea of being in conflict without necessarily looking at what the content really is.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I I laughed when you, when you said some people enjoy it because I'm sure all of the listeners probably had somebody's picture pop into their head and I certainly did (laughs) of the, of that individual. Uh, And and I'll admit, I, I, I used to hate conflict. I mean, I I grew up in a household where, you know, arguments were bad and conflict was bad. And, and so that was kind of, that was, that was how I was raised. But the longer I spent in HR, the more I kind of learned to like it because it fostered growth. And, you know, sometimes I enjoy it a little bit too much, which is probably more of my own ego. But but I, d- I do think that there's there's so much positive that can happen if somebody's willing to face potential conflict.
0: That's exactly right. I also grew up in a house that was conflict-averse, And in fact, we weren't even allowed to say we were having an argument. We had to say we were having a discussion uh, because I think there was so much concern that conflict was a negative. And you can actually get a reverse problem, which is that no one wants to disagree. That Mm -hmm. there's this idea that if we don't have consensus, we don't have good relationships when that couldn't be further from the truth because then you force all problems to stay under the surface and, and who knows what's brewing down there, you know, when opening that up, putting a little sunlight on it, resolving things, having room to feel a little uncomfortable but then come back together, that's how you progress. I, I agree with your description And talking about it as a form of growth and a chance to stretch and see what else can we do here and how do we do it together?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, on a personal level, uh, on a very personal level. So, you know, an example of a conflict that uh, may have been healthy. So I'm a I'm a child of of divorce. My parents got divorced when I was I was very young, uh, but it was a complete and utter shock. Because there was never any there was never any conflict at home. i I never saw any arguments whatsoever. They, everything was kind of repressed. And then when the divorce happened, it was like you know the the rug getting pulled out from underneath me and my brother. Uh, and as I reflected on it as I grew and matured, I realized that you know, some of the toxicity m- might have just breeded itself into my parents' relationship. And, and then just never it never got resolved because there was there was a fear of conflict there um, and it's a happy ending and they both remarried and found wonderful spouses and I have a wonderful big family now but but as I look at some of those those little things uh, you know it's I, I've tried I try to take those and think about that in the context of healthy conflict is is critical to good communication.
0: I think that is really right, and I'm happy for you that it worked out. Um, In many ways, though, not letting it come to the surface is like having a wound Mm.
1: underneath, Mm -hmm.
0: you know, and um, sometimes you really have to uncover it to be able to treat it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we went a lot more personal than I had planned before this <laughs> interview, but, but you, you're touching a nerve. I'm getting, you know, I'm feeling the goosebumps on the back of my neck here. Cause I just think it's, I just think it's so right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I feel like, you know, in the, in the context of work, you know, I've got to believe that that foundation that you talked about, if, if those wounds are left unaddressed, right. that that foundation gets worse and worse. Is that what you've, is that what you've experienced?
0: So I'm going to say yes, and worse can look lots of different ways. Um, Worse can mean that you're in a meeting and what you see are, when we could be in meetings together in the same room, um, what you see are crossed arms and people not looking at each other and rolling back from the table and really shutting each other out, which is an excellent way to shut off all progress. Um, It can manifest as leaders of different departments literally telling their teams not to talk to each other or not to cooperate with each other, not to share crucial information in ways that can be incredibly dangerous to a business, um, it the fact that there's you know no yelling or no door slamming doesn't mean it's a healthy environment.
1: So so how for an HR professional who's maybe um, maybe newer in the workplace or is starting to become a little bit more aware of potential issues within the culture or conflicts. What are some some things or tactics that you would recommend someone in our shoes take in order to maybe uncover if there's conflict or issues brewing and then and then how to start to foster some healthy um healthy foundations being built?
0: great, so one of the things that h r can do is um There used to be an expression, I don't know if it's so relevant anymore, about we're Switzerland. um, HR can take a role of facilitation. Not to resolve conflicts, but to help participants resolve them. And you said for a relatively new person. So as a relatively new person, I don't know that I would try to walk into a long standing conflict and facilitate it you need to know the players you need to know the history and one of the things that i would say that is really crucial to hr professionals you need to know the business you need to know how the business makes money what the business model is what the business processes are Because without that kind of context, you can actually get taken in by people who are persuasive but might be wrong. Mm. (laughs) I I know that sounds funny, but it is remarkable how easy it is to want to agree with somebody who sounds good, who is self-assured who has, you know, a string of successes to their name and not recognize that some awkward person who sort of sits in the corner actually has the facts about what's really going on. So the first thing I would say for HR professionals is learn your business. Really learn it. And that's not always easy to do because you're so busy doing what is considered the work of HR that you can actually be in a kind of silo and not know it.
1: Absolutely. It's, I, I tell people it's so much easier to be in HR when all you do is sit in your office <laughs> and, and administer things, right? I mean, that's easier. You have to actively get out and learn if you want to be effective, uh, and 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 that takes time, that takes energy, and it also takes some business acumen in order to be a true business partner. So, agree a hundred percent.
0: Yes, I. You said it perfectly. Um, I think the idea of leaving your office is really important because one of the things about sitting in HR. Is very often you end up hearing more of, let's call it one side of the story. Sometimes there are six sides, so maybe you hear two. The people who come to you to tell you there's a problem. And sometimes they are totally in the right. But sometimes they're people who just want their way and they know to come to HR for help. So Part of the value of being Switzerland is actually learning about everybody and knowing what their strengths are and also where they are prone to acting too urgently, overstatement, um, feeling aggrieved when there was nothing meant. To harm them, you know those kinds of things. All the human stuff. It's not just knowing what the roles and the job definitions are.
1: Right, absolutely. I, it just it reminds me of us of when I f- was very early in my HR career, and a very seasoned production supervisor I was in a manufacturing environment. They came up and they they were introducing themselves and and they looked me in the eye and they said you're only going to deal with like 5% of my employees and here's the 5% you need to know about. And, you know, at at that point I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to get to know everybody the same and everybody's going to, you know, we're going to have the same level of relationship. And he was totally right. I was dealing with that 5%, (laughs) like 95% of the time. And it was a struggle to get the other side of the story because some employees just capitalize all of your free time if you allow it and it's it can be really really difficult <laughs> so I I hear that there's yeah and there's usually six plus sides to every story right yeah. there's, there's never a right and a wrong
0: <laughs> right right and and let's go back to those squeaky wheel five percenters um they may alert you to what's happening mm-hmm yep So that's useful because you need a way to know, oh, there's a situation I have to address. Um, But one of the things that happens with people who behave in that way is often other people will just sort of fall away before them because they don't want to deal with them because it's so stressful to see them coming. I used to work with a guy a million years ago who would stick his head into my office and say, you got a minute? And I always knew, okay, that was it. There was the rest of the afternoon. So I never wanted to talk to him because it was so stressful to deal with him. Um, and we we like to avoid those people as opposed to trying to manage them. And just in that kind of circumstance, you know, I learned – I. I figured out because I was tired of the struggle to say to him I don't have a minute right now but I can meet with you on Tuesday or I can give you three minutes now so you can tell me what the topic is and then we'll take it up on Tuesday and to get him to in effect create an agenda out of his problem and give it to me in advance So that I could figure out how I was going to manage the conversation instead of being victimized by his stream of consciousness. Mm. And that's a kind of technique that's really useful in the facilitative role of figuring out how you're going to get all parties heard. And I want to give you another one that is so important, so important. Do not get trapped In letting Amy come to you on Monday and tell you her tale of woe and everything that Bill is doing wrong and you take notes and you're very thoughtful about it and then Bill comes to you on Tuesday and tells you all the reasons that what Amy wants is unacceptable and how hard he is struggling and you take all your notes and you're talking to one and you're talking to the other. The value comes from bringing them together and showing them that what they want is inextricably connected, that it is all part of the work we all have to do, that we are one unit here trying to figure out how to take the organization forward. It is not about having either one of them inherently feel happy and satisfied that they got everything they wanted.
1: So good. Yeah. I I mean, that's that's it because what happens when you play both sides and you're you're having these conversations uh, outside of the fact that it takes a lot longer (laughs) to talk, to hear one side of the story and then the other versus just mediate. But I mean, what happens if you just hear one side and, and hear the other? What is that? What is the ripple effect of that?
0: So a bunch of things happen. First of all, they start looking to you as the solution, as if you are the solution, as if you can give them what they want, force or cause the other person to behave in a way they want. Well, not only is that exhausting, it's totally ineffective. You're never in a position to do that, or almost never from an HR perspective. And even as the CEO, you are rarely able to just give somebody what they want um so that's the first thing you've got to get yourself out of the middle the second thing is they never learn to work with each other so Mm -hmm. you always have to be the arbiter every single difference of opinion can end up on your desk well that's terrible Mm -hmm. (laughs) you never get out from under that yeah no thank you (laughs) right right really bad um third thing, if they think you are the solution or are providing the solution, in some ways they never give up hope that they could get what they want from you if they can just figure out how to work you. But if they have to learn to compromise and negotiate and think creatively together, they actually come up with better solutions because they're smart, you know, they know Mm -hmm. what they need to do, they want good things most of the time, they will actually come up with better ideas, things that create more goodness for everybody, or at least that balance them out better, if you can help them with the interaction. You know, it's like, um, okay, so I don't know if, If you grew up with siblings, but if two kids are fighting a little and the parent says, go back to your room and resolve this, well, whichever one either has better bribes or is stronger or is cleverer will win almost every time. And that just becomes a consistent pattern. The relationship doesn't move forward. And and in workplace terms, the work doesn't move forward either. The same person usually gets their way. But if they have to come to a creative solution together, then the work and the organization are better served.
1: Got it. Yeah, I'm curiously taking notes because I have three kids that um, <laughs> they, could, they could use some of this advice.
0: <laughs> it's funny how it works. I mean, if you watch it play out with your kids, it will give you great ideas for what happens at work. <laughs>
1: That's a great way to think about it. And there's been times in my career where I feel like I'm a daycare provider.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's very bad, Kyle. That's really terrible. And that's terrible on two counts. One is because it means that your colleagues are not operating out of their best selves. And two, because then you are in a frame... That almost—it's almost as if you end up assuming they're not mature enough to step up and do the right thing. I think it hurts both sides.
1: Yeah, no. I, I fortunately I don't have that situation in my my current work environment, but in a past life, um, it—I I think I was doing all of the things you're telling me that I shouldn't do <laughs> back then, and I had to learn the hard way that I couldn't solve people's problems for them because I'm a—I'm a builder and a fixer. That's how my I like to operate. So somebody brings something to me. I just, I want to make it better. Um, And then I found that that didn't work because making, you know, fixing their issue caused an issue for someone else and kind of had to learn the hard way when to stick my nose in something versus facilitate. Um, and, And I do think that, I don't know if it was as much me personally, but I would tell you that the attitude within the HR department I worked in was one of... Uh, one that did not necessarily assume that everybody was mature enough to fix their own problems. That, that was not the way that we treated them.
0: Yeah, that's really a shame. Um, I would say that that is an old traditional mode of HR that does not contribute to company growth. Um it demoralizes right. people, and 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 really, it disparages them. Um, and some of where that comes from is is not only because HR came out of, um, you know, old administrative models of documents <laughs> and <laughs> and enforcement yep. and and that kind of thing, uh, but also this idea that people couldn't stay out of their own way when there's really so much upside that we can gain if if we just put a little extra wind in their sails i mean we don't want them going over a cliff but to your point about learning things the hard way if you think of all of this organizational and interpersonal challenge as running a set of experiments trying different ways to interact even with people who are troublesome the thing is a lot of experiments actually pan out and very few of them are deadly you can always go back this is one of the things I love about humans you can have a conflict and it can be terrible and you can always go back tomorrow and say you know I was thinking about what happened yesterday and I want to say something different
1: yeah and I think all the all the early career missteps that, I mean, this is a perfect subject for this, this podcast. That's part of what formed, you know, the intent to try to shake up the world of HR a little bit and, and think a little bit differently about how do we, how do we actually treat others? How do we, how do we look at an entire human experience as opposed to just looking at people as, as employee numbers and, and things that that we have to force to comply to a, to a, Three hundred page handbook, <laughs> That's which right. is which is literally the yeah that was the that was the approach it, in a past life. So well said. So I think one of the one of the biggest challenges um, that that HR faces, or that maybe that HR's um, you know the people leaders that HR supports faces, dealing with the conflict that arises with problem performers. So. Uh, as we think about conflict and dealing with somebody who is not performing in a way that we want them to, uh, what approaches would you take in order to address some of those problem behaviors or, or uh, problem performers?
0: The first thing is to recognize that there is a history before this situation got to you and to Not assume that it's your job to just create a performance improvement plan or a corrective action plan because those are the rules. If part of the charter of HR is to help employees be and do their best and feel decently about it while they're at work, then you need to look back a little ways. And when somebody is a problem, it's to figure out how they got to be that way. Were they that way when we hired them, in which case we may have broken them um, if if they weren't? You know, if if we hired them as a problem, that's on us and mm-hmm. we really have to figure out, can we help them learn to work well here or do we have to take responsibility for the fact that it was a bad hire? And give them an appropriate off-ramp with appropriate severance, so that they can find a new, better life someplace else. We made a mistake. That's you know, case one. Case two is they were fine when they got here, and now they're a problem because there's some set of circumstances that we may even have sanctioned. Uh, I mean, that sanctioned in the positive sense. We may have said this is okay. And in some way, it didn't work for them. it It got them off on their bad foot. you know so something mm-hmm. went wrong, and we have to think about how do we help them get back to being their good self because we have some responsibility for that on behalf of our organization. Um, it's very unusual for have to, to have someone who's a problem employee that Was never a problem employee until the day before yesterday, and it's all of a sudden. (laughs) So, (laughs) knowing the history and knowing the history not just from the perspective of their boss is really important because their boss, of course, is fed up. And sometimes they're fed up and wishing it were better and wanting to do something better, and sometimes they're fed up and just want them gone. But you got to be fair to the problem employee. So many people. Are not only salvageable, but can do significantly better than they're doing if they have the right support and if somebody is really candid with them in a compassionate way.
1: Yeah, I th- I, I love the term that you used. That I think it's real. We've broken them. Yeah,
0: because <laughs> yeah, oh, I yeah. mean
1: that that's yeah. I don't. I, I have yet to meet. I mean, I I know there are some out there, but I have yet to meet somebody who i have hired that has intentionally wanted to do a bad job. I mean, that that's not the that is the exception, not the rule in my experience. So um, I mean, it typically there's something underlying there. Either it's a fit issue. Maybe we didn't screen properly, or it's a support issue, and we haven't we haven't given them the tools, resources, training, whatever. Uh, maybe the supervisor is not compassionate as as uh, you made a, a very important point. Uh, in helping them learn and achieve. And I think it's, you know, by the time it gets to HR, a lot of times, especially if you don't have good relationships within the business, by the time it gets to your desk, that supervisor's usually ready to fire that person or is just done. Like they've tried everything, quote, they've tried everything, but they really haven't.
0: (laughs) That is so right. Kyle, one of the kinds of support, when you were talking about support, so many managers don't know how to create clarity of direction, don't know how to set expectations in a way that the challenging employee actually understands what's expected of them, how to deliver it, when to ask for help, those kinds of things. More of what goes wrong is that we don't deal with people in the way they need to be able to do their best because it does force most managers to have to learn about all different kinds of people and to be willing to change their delivery manage their communications so that the other person can understand and be comfortable and that's a lot of work and managers often don't think of it in terms of that kind of depth and that kind of investment and it's hard and it's tiring and and that's why exactly to your point if they feel they've tried Three different things, which often, by the way, is actually saying the same thing, but once they said it in passing and once they said it in an email and once they said it, you know, sitting together at a conference table. But they never really found out why whatever wasn't working wasn't working. (laughs) Right. So they run out of patience, but in effect, they are wrecking somebody who might be fine if it was just explained in a different way.
1: So what about, so I agree 100%. I think, I think that nine times out of 10, if you catch it early enough and, and you're willing to invest resources, you can help anybody be successful. What about the one out of 10 that is a maybe a bad fit or somebody that is really actively disengaged and maybe past the point of no return? What, what, what steps uh, make sense in those types of situations?
0: Okay, so the first thing is, if that's your sense about it, to validate it. And sometimes that's with their manager, and sometimes that's with them independently. But it's actually asking them what they want, what they want for their career trajectory, what they want for their day-to-day. Are they getting it? What is their perception of how well they're doing? Sometimes you have people, you know, it's a really challenging thing. Some people are quite self-aware and can tell you exactly what's going wrong. And then there are some people who actually can't. They really don't see what's happening or they're living in a dream world sounds trivial or or trite, but they are not actually tuned into what's happening around them. So when you have somebody who, um, whether we picked them wrong or broke them, really doesn't fit anymore, and if you don't see the hope of helping them fit, then the responsible thing to do for both the business and for them is to exit them. But you need to do that fairly, as opposed to treating them like they are the enemy. Um, it, It just, you know, you never know in this world when the person you have to fire today becomes your colleague somewhere else down the road. Yeah, I've had this happen to me numerous times, and it is—it's such a relief to be able to see someone at an industry event or whatever, and be fond of them and happy to see them, even though you were the one who had to sever (laughs) their Mm -hmm. relationship. That's much better than feeling like you have to cross the street. So finding humane and responsible ways to terminate somebody's employment, that's really important. And working in an organization where the senior leadership understands that when the company gets that wrong, the company needs to pay. The company needs to create an off-ramp, as I like to call it, because The off-ramp suggests that there is smooth movement from where they are today to where they can be tomorrow. They're still a valid human being. It just didn't work out. If they were working, I'm not talking about somebody who's committed a bad act. Okay, in which case you get them out, you get them out fast, you do whatever you have to do legally. But I'm talking about somebody who committed a certain portion of their life to you and tried and maybe a lovely person. But it is not helpful to the organization to keep them, sends a bad message to other people. And in fact, they're probably unhappy most every day. So helping them figure out what is their next move. Um, helping them learn to manage themselves before they go. Sometimes there's the opportunity to do that. All of these things help enhance their sense of dignity and therefore um, their sort of good attitude towards your company as opposed to their wanting to wound you on the
1: way out absolutely and I, I i think that's such a critical point and something that something that everybody in hr needs to hear and and the truth is uh, the way you treat them on the way out people will notice that that are still within your organization <laughs> so for sure for sure i mean that if you have a toxic departure of somebody who truly maybe was just the wrong fit maybe it was a bad hire uh, maybe they were actively disengaged maybe the job got outgrew them you know for whatever reason but if you treat them with disrespect you're you're creating a toxic culture that's just what happens absolutely
0: and you know if let's go back to a kind of operations metaphor okay if if we um build a defective product which we don't mean to do Okay, but let's say there are a certain number of defects and we ship that to a customer and the customer says this is a defective product. Well, we take it back or we refund the money. We make them whole in some way, right? We don't just say, oh, tough. There are expectations that the company will make that right. Well, if we've created that kind of situation internally, isn't that still on us to make it right in some way? We can't smooth the whole thing over we can't give them back the 5 years they worked for us we can't eliminate the fact that they may have created damage internally because maybe we hired them and they they didn't have the competencies we thought they did so they actually messed stuff up you know big mm-hmm. time there there are all kinds of really human mistakes that get made when we can't live with them anymore we have to pay in time or money or attention what it takes to make things end
1: well and i think even more critical and more important in the situation that unfortunately many have faced right now is involuntary layoffs and and you know how do you treat people when they're exiting and it's not even any of their fault <laughs> it's it's a you know potentially a a financial purely financial reason in order to retain solvency within your business. I mean that how you treat those people leaving is that's gonna reverberate for years to come,
0: yes, and so many organizations are facing that now it's really a terrible thing. Um, I think one of the best things you can do, even if you can't do much in terms of severance, at least for the human. If you can say, we, we hope we will be able to rehire you. We would love to do that when business picks up again or whatever the circumstance is. That's one thing, first of all, that says you are a valuable member of this team and we, we have high regard for you. So from an ego perspective, that's much better. Mm -hmm. Um, A second thing is to be willing to provide strong references and to offer that. We are happy to provide references for you. You know, have them call, have, you know, you, if you find a job prospect, please have them get in touch with me. I want them to know how good you are. That not only will help somebody get a job, but it will help them feel better about looking. And then they're more likely to find a job because they feel strong and they know they have your support. And you never know, you know, there are more and more boomerang employees uh, who go work somewhere else. Maybe you had to lay them off. Maybe they just needed a new experience. And three years later, come back with more skills, more experience, and that's great for you and them.
1: Yeah, I mean I've I can I can think of a number of rehires at at various organizations I've been at that have come back and it's either been one of two things. It's either been that they have they have a new skill set, which is wonderful, or they have a great attitude because they realized the grass was not greener. Yeah. <laughs> either one is great. I'm good with both. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, both of those are good.
1: All right, so uh, we are closing in on time, and I sincerely appreciated the conversation, uh, furiously taking notes and noting all the, all the times when I probably screwed up, and uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm hearing it now again, and I'll make sure I don't do it again. Uh, but, but I want to get into the, the flash round. Um, so uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the first question. What are you reading right now?
0: Okay, I just, um, so I usually read half a dozen books at once, which means sometimes it takes quite a while. I just finished a lovely book with a what I think is a wonderful theme. It's called The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility by a woman named Marilyn Gist or Gist, I'm not sure, it's G-I-S-T, um, which actually touches on many of the things we just talked about. So that's a great one about leadership. Um, A book called Radical Responsibility by a fellow named Fleet Mall. Um, And I'm reading multiple books on structural racism, racism in the workplace, etc., uh one of the easiest reads of this kind is called The Person You Mean to Be by Dolly Chu. Hmm. Um, but there's I'm also reading The Memo by Minda Hartz, which is very eye opening and and confronting about ways in which we have really done very badly um, speaking as a white person Mm. in understanding that not only is not everybody like us, but they don't need to be. Um, And also how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Because it's not enough just to think you are not racist that's really not useful the thing is to try to make sure that where you work is good for everybody not just not inciting bad things
1: absolutely really powerful powerful stuff not not necessarily easy for Somebody who has not been treated that way throughout their life to think that they might be part of the problem, <laughs> but critical exactly to right. understand, right? Yeah,
0: right. It's very hard to fix things if you can't see your own responsibility in them. That's that's a very good thing for conflict too. By the way, Kyle, um, even in HR, for any person who's dealing with conflict as a facilitator or as a participant, to press themselves what is my responsibility here? What did I contribute to this situation? Absolutely. I'm sorry. It's the lightning round. Go on.
1: It's okay. No, this is so good. <laughs> um, all right. Second question. Who should we be listening to?
0: Um, if you mean actual audio, I got to tell you right now, for me, it's like news all the time. Um, I listen to Brian Lehrer for commentary. He, uh, it's, it's a talk radio program on WNYC.org in New York, and he brings out the issues and multiple points of view better than almost anybody I've heard. He's fabulous. Um, I also really like On Being with Krista Tippett, which is a little more spiritual. And then the, oh, you can tell I'm a big NPR listener because the other thing I listen to, and it is so comforting, is um, the Tiny Desk Concerts, which is a great way to learn about new music that you're not familiar with. Um, And that's also on NPR.
1: Oh, Perfect. All right, last question, perhaps the most difficult one of the day. How can our listeners connect with you?
0: Oh, they can find me uh, at my website, <laughs> which is www.lizkislick.org For anybody who is driving or on their exercise bicycle, it uh, is L-I-Z-K-I-S-L-I-K. Or they can also find me um, on LinkedIn or on Twitter, same handle.
1: Absolutely, and we will have a link to all of that in the show notes. The other thing that we are offering to all of our Rebel HR listeners is a free ebook, "How to Resolve Interpersonal Conflicts in the Workplace." Uh, we'll have that link as well. Uh, and if if you get an opportunity, I strongly recommend it. There's so much good content out there uh, in everything from how to handle an employee who plays a perfect victim to are you tired of being condescended to? It's, it's so good. Great content and really, really appreciate having you on today, Liz. Thank you so much for the time.
0: It's been so fun to talk to you.
1: All right. That does it for the Rebel HR Podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. Views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR podcast or those of the authors that do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we met No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast.
0: Baby.